Hello and welcome to Global Data Pod. I'm Nora Santivani and joining me today is Mike Hansen. Hi Mike, how are you doing? All right, yourself? Yeah, I'm doing okay. So today we're going to do a research wrap uh, covering our monthly global inflation monitor for the month of June, but we're also going to weave in some really interesting findings from some of our recent research reports covering El Nino, covering the U.S. inflation forecast for the second half. So I don't know what, Mike, should we start with the inflation monitor? Yeah, no, I think that makes sense, right? It's, I think it's, uh, we're at a point now where we're starting to actually see things move in the direction that we've been expecting, right? So uh, I think maybe why don't you kind of tee us up to sort of what we're seeing and kind of how it relates to the forecast. Yeah, I'll start with the good news first. Uh, the good news is that at long last, we are getting core disinflation, uh, core CPI gains uh, moderated to just 0.2% month on month in June. Uh, that's the lowest reading we've had in nearly two years. If we look at the annualized rate, core inflation is down to just 4.1%, excluding China and Turkey. You know, that comes after a long while we were stuck at 5%. So it's nice to see finally that that core inflation run rate coming off uh, to, to four. I think what's also quite positive is that the, the slowing in core inflation is quite broad based across regions, both in EM and DM. Uh, we're getting that sort of four percentage number now. And we're also seeing slowing across both core goods and services. I will caveat that by saying that services inflation is running, uh, you know, still well above central bank targets. I think that's a disclaimer we make. Uh, um, so, yeah, I, I say that's the good news. Maybe bad news or not bad news, but not as good news, I, I think, is that uh, in, in headline terms, it looks like a, a lot of the disinflation in momentum terms might be sort of be behind us. And. It feels like even though year-on-year -year terms, headline inflation is going to continue to come off, um, I think um, in momentum terms, we could start to rebound a little bit here uh, in the second half. And that's due both to food and energy uh, price declines now nearing an end. And that sort of disinflationary impulse, it looks like it's going to turn, uh, turn the other way. Right. So obviously, big base effects kind of helping those headline numbers, right, for a while here. Uh, but as you point out, kind of the run rate, particularly, I guess, more on energy than maybe food at this stage, although El Nino is going to be an interesting risk we'll get to in a minute. Um, but, you know, it looks like yeah. that maybe the energy number is starting to inch back up. Um, you know, little, yeah, 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 exactly. I mean, in, 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 in May, we had um, energy prices fell 2%. In June, they were broadly flat. So what we are now seeing on the annualized um, run rate is we've gone from like a minus 14 to minus 8. So I think the trough is now, as I said, behind us, and we're slowly going to start to see increasingly less negative uh, numbers, as in the deflationary impulse from energy is fading. Uh, with Brent, oil is up about something like just over 2%, two, 2.5% two two in July. And remember, our commodity research team has a forecast of Brent um, rebounding further above um, $80 per barrel in the second half. So if you put all that together, then this drag from energy turns into a modest lift by the fourth yes. quarter. That's what exactly. happens. Just yep. to be clear, that's built into our forecast. So if this materializes, then that wouldn't pose a new risk to our forecast. But that we're kind of tracking that, I would say, at this at this point in time. Fair. Less clear it's built into market assumptions. Markets have gotten very excited about the disinflation, particularly in the core. So maybe that's the next place to turn to, right? Talk a little bit more about what we're seeing on the core front. Yeah, on 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 core. Um, I mean, look first on the services side. Uh, there is cooling. Um, 
globally, we are, um, you know, we're down, we peaked at seven and a half percent. I know that sounds really high and EM core um, services inflation actually got really high at that point. And from there, we've come down close to five percent pace in the three months to June. Now that, as I mentioned, is still well above where sort of central banks want it to be. But, you know, in a couple of countries, we're now getting services inflation coming off. Uh, quite materially, uh, you know, some of the Latin countries are running below 4% annualized on services inflation. I think the U.S. is a really interesting one to highlight where services inflation eased to just 4%. Um, the super core measure we've talked about, which is the core CPIX um, services X rent of shelter, was even more benign, right? It was it was flat on the month. Um, Maybe, Mike, you want to jump in here and kind of talk us through uh, the, the the services inflation story in the U.S. because it feels like there's a bunch of really volatile items that are maybe currently depressing the numbers. So how much of a signal should we read into this easing that we're seeing right now? Yeah, no, that's a great question. I mean, I should point out that it's clear that the recent CPI numbers are encouraging and that, you know, it's not just the headline, as you pointed out, but certainly core. Um, core is still not close to the Fed's comfort level, right? Um, as you point out, the Run rate is slow to, to just above four uh, after it was running at 5% in May. We still have, of course, the year ago rate running at 4.8. Um, but you are seeing some, I think, signs that things are cooling in the near term. And I think it's really a question of, of kind of different pieces and how sustainable they are. So the piece that looks most sustainable is rental inflation, right? We've been expecting for a long, long, long time that rental inflation, shelter inflation will continue to decelerate. And that seems to be largely on track. If anything, we're running a little bit ahead of our expectation for cooling there. Um, then there's a number of components. It's actually a few in goods as well, but a number of components on the services side that not clear what the how sustained of a disinflation we're going to have. Right. So we had really weak airfares last month. Not clear that that's going to continue to run at minus 8% uh, for the foreseeable future. But I think more significant is health insurance, right? So healthcare in general is obviously a reasonably important piece of the inflation measure in the U.S. right after uh, housing, after shelter. And it's an even bigger component in a relative sense in the PCE, which is what the Fed is targeting as opposed to the CPI. Mm -hmm. We'll return to that in a moment here. But we're, the way in which the, the Bureau of Labor Statistics brings specifically medical insurance into the CPI, it, it kind of has this choppy, lumpy reset every fall. And last fall, it reset to a very significant uh, drag on inflation, about 3 to 4% at a monthly rate. It looks like it's going to reset to something that's at least half a percent positive, perhaps 1% or more than 1%. Um, for the kind of 12-month period following this fall, this September, October. And so that runs the risk that you're going to actually see some firming in, in services inflation in the fourth quarter relative to the third quarter. And again, with the market very excited that inflation, you know, dragon seems to be slayed, that could be a, a bit of a shock to markets that aren't fully paying attention to that. The other mm -hmm. important point to just make on there is that you don't see the same dynamics in core PCE. And to the extent the Fed is targeting core PCE, that run rate, is still around 4% on the super core, whereas it's below 2% on the CPI. So that gap is significant, and that remains, I think, a challenge for the Fed. Right, but it sounds like that gap will close and everything will kind of be sticky around 4% towards the end of the year. If you look at sort of core services inflation, that's where we're sort of settling. Yes, right after yes this year. And, and exactly. And, and so overall core, 
dropping to a, a run rate around three, but maybe ticking up to something closer to three and a half by year end. Yeah. Okay. So, so a, a lot of the disinflationary impulses I mentioned globally, um, but also in the U.S. right now, is is on is on core goods, where we've had very um, sharp slowdown. In in June globally, um, we have zero one on the month. Uh, again, that's the weakest we've had in two years for core goods. Uh, you know, this comes after a, a string of upside surprises through the first five months and. Uh, we were kind of worried we weren't going to get the slowing in core goods inflation that our models were suggesting, but we're finally seeing it. Um, now, the annualized run rate is still higher um, than where it was at the start of the year. But as I said, we are losing momentum here uh, pretty rapidly. And we see scope for that slowdown to extend on the back of continued fading of supply bottlenecks. So there's still some residual um, impact from that. Then we have the lag impact of weak goods demand generally. And then the excess supply story in China, whereby China is exporting some um, deflation to the rest of the world. Now, again, in the U.S., things look a little bit noisy, as always. Um, we should probably discount some of the swings in, in auto prices. Um, but what's your sense on core goods, broadly speaking, if you take out autos? Um, is there a sustainable disinflation there? Yeah, I think that... We're looking at you know U.S. core goods inflation getting down relative certainly where it was three, six, twelve months ago. Um, Pre-pandemic goods prices in the U.S. actually ran a slightly negative inflation rate, right? They're actually a source of disinflation, and it may be that that we don't get quite back to that level, or maybe it's something sort of zero to slightly positive on a forward basis. There's a couple of risks, as you mentioned, right? You know, you, you've seen some significant fall. Most recent print and used prices, used car prices, used vehicle prices. Those probably still have a few more months to run. But then it probably, you know, that is also largely behind us. Um, on the trade, you know, on the import side, you've certainly seen some softening. Um, you've seen a bigger decline in prices coming out of China than you've seen elsewhere. So it's an interesting question of how much of that will translate over to the U.S. more broadly. And you have seen the U.S. dollar on a trade weighted basis come off a bit relative to when it had peaked back in October. And you're not seeing all of that show up just yet in, in the import prices. So I think there's this tension, as you mentioned before, you've got easing of supply constraints and that should be disinflationary, but you've got a couple of other things hanging out there that may lean against it a little bit. So when it's all said and done, I think it is a more sustained disinflation. It may not be quite as disinflationary as it was pre-pandemic. Yeah, I think for EM, my sense is certainly the next um, three to six months, this disinflation in core goods uh, can continue. Uh, we're already down to about a 3% annualized pace from six at the start of the year. And I think that can easily get down to, I don't know, two, maybe even a little bit lower. Um, and certainly EM has the added kicker of uh, significant FX uh, strengthening, um, not just versus dollar, but also versus CNY. So they're effectively now... Um, importing this um, deflationary impulse from China. And I think that's where we'd, we'd expect to see um, the most material impact. Um, now, maybe we should talk about the elephant in the room on, on food prices, right? I mean, I, I've had, you know, dozens and dozens of client conversations over the past few weeks. I'm sure you have it as well. And El Nino just keeps coming up in every one of them. Uh, so we should probably address that as, as, a, as a risk. Uh, sure. to, Outlook. I mean, certainly, uh, let me just, um, you know, a few words in terms of what we've seen through June. So food inflation has uh, continued to slow here, uh, quite materially for that matter. 
Uh, so through June, we're down effectively um, to just 2.9% annualized on global food inflation ex, ex China Turkey. So we've come a really long way from those double digit gains we had um, last year. Now, my concern is that this may well mark the low point for food inflation. Um, and possibly by end of the year, we could be looking at something like three and a half, maybe four. You know, now again, this isn't a massive. Um, you know, uh, re reacceleration, but certainly it feels like, uh, as with energy, the disinflationary impulse from food could be coming to an end. FAO food index. Um, if I take the surge in some of the key commodities that we've seen over July, like wheat, corn, sugar, palm oil, FAO is on track for a three and a half percent increase. That that would be the first month-on-month increase we've seen. Pretty much since last April, we've just had continuous declines in the FAO uh, worth a cumulative like 25%. Uh, so this could bring to an end uh, that a successive string of, of declines. Now, in terms of what's driving this, I mean, there's a bunch of things here in the mix. There's uh, the disrupt- disruptive El Nino, which is already interfering with rainfall and crop production in a couple of countries. There's the breakdown of the agreement to ship Ukrainian grains, which is probably the most significant factor impacting wheat prices here. And it feels like some of these, again, could continue to push prices up uh, in, in the near term. Now, in terms of how that transmits to the CPI, what I would say up front is there are considerable lags. So even if we see these increases in the FAO, at the global level, you're really looking at something like almost three to six months of, of when it would actually start pushing the CPI higher. In EM, it's slightly sooner. So in EM, I think in the next two to three months, we should start to see an impact. In DM, it could take a while longer. It feels to me like all of these risks would ultimately put upward pressure on CPI more towards the end of the year. Yes. Is that kind of consistent with your findings on the, the research you did on El Nino in, in particular? Like what's the timing of this shock if it happens? Yeah, I think that that's, those are all good points. I think that, look, the, there's obviously uh, intrinsic uncertainty in forecasting the weather, but it does look like we're in line for what is going to be a strong El Nino um, based on what at least, you know, I think some uh, researchers in the U.S. and Australia are tracking uh, by around the, the end of the year. So November, December, January, February, somewhere in that period, right? And then to your point, there, there tends to be a bit of a lag. It's, it can be as much as three or four quarters until the full impact of an El Nino is felt on global commodity prices. I think it is worth pointing out that it's not only food that's impacted. Obviously, food is a very important channel. There's a number of, of raw materials, um, timber, rubber, cotton. Those things can feed, obviously, into other goods prices uh, over time, uh, should you get a, a meaningful impact there, and some fats and oils as well. So there's a number of, of things that are in the commodity complex. Uh, in addition to wheat, rice, corn, uh, that could very much be you know, impacted as time goes on. In that context, if we look kind of historically, the last two El Ninos that were potentially of similar size to the one we've seen were in 2009-10 and then 2015-2016. And in those episodes, you did not see a simple linear translation from an El Nino shock into inflation. It very much varied by country. Uh, it varied intensity by uh, commodity. Some of that, I think, has to do with what conditions are going into the shock. Um, So, for example, uh, was it a relatively wet season in places like Australia and 
uh, part of Southeast Asia, you know, parts of Latin America that are at risk for drought, right? Is it an environment where you've had maybe some bumper crops previously, there's some evidence of that in, in some of the crops uh, that allows you to actually have some inventory to cushion against an El Nino shock, right? Is there scope for governments to step in and try to cushion these shocks themselves with a range of policies that kind of break the path through into CPI? So all of those are, are certainly factors that could mitigate the risk here. But it looks like, you know, you're going to probably get a big El Nino shock. There's likely going to be some speed through to commodity prices. And the real question is how much that's going to feed through the CPI. But the timing is very much what you said. We're really talking about late this year and into the first half of next. Yeah. And it feels like, uh, you know, as, as you said, there's a bunch of mitigating factors uh, uh, this time around. We've mentioned the ample uh, buffer stocks of, of, of the various uh, key commodities that should help to dampen potentially the, the price shocks in, in this channel. Um, of course, clients always ask us, where should we look for the shock, right? Um, and I think, as you point out in your note, we, it would be felt more in EM than in DM. And that's partly just on the basis of EMs having a larger weight on food in their CPIs. But also, if you look back at the 2015-16 El Nino episode, the countries where um, inflation increases were relatively large. They were in EM, particularly four countries that we've highlighted, India, Colombia, Brazil, and South Africa. Um, and I think the two of these, we're already starting to see some impact, India and Colombia, and the others, it feels like it could be a little bit delayed. Um, okay. But these are some of the places where we would be looking for an impact. But the starting point just seems like it's it's, it's fairly benign in that there, there are these sort of strategic reserves that some of these countries can um, can draw on. Yep, I think that's fair, right? So again, I, time will tell how big the El Nino is. It's certainly pointing in the direction it could be large. And then the translation into global inflation remains to be seen. But it is certainly an upside risk. Now, okay, so core disinflation, but some risks on the headline side coming from food in particular, and the disinflation from energy also fading. Where does this leave... Um, monetary policy. What are, how are central banks going to be looking at this combination? And I, I suspect this could vary across across regions and, and countries. But um, why don't you start us off with the Fed? How is the Fed yeah. viewing the, these numbers? Yeah, well, obviously, a couple of key central banks this week uh, who will be very closely watching their inflation outlooks. Uh, for the Fed, uh, our base case is that the economy cools significantly going forward, and that allows the Fed to be done hiking you know, this week. But as we've highlighted in a number of pieces, the risks are skewed towards the Fed potentially having to do more, particularly if it turns out that labor markets stay tight and inflation, particularly service inflation, remains sticky, right? Um, but even if the Fed doesn't hike further, we are expecting them to remain at this you know, fairly restrictive level for quite some time. They really need to see compelling evidence that uh, the economy has cooled and inflation is coming down before they start to ease. And that's a bit at odds with what the market's pricing. You know, we're looking for a somewhat similar dynamic in, in some of the other big uh, uh, developed market economies. You know, you, we have ECB hiking another 25 this week, and they're almost certainly not done. There's a likelihood that we'll get additional rate hikes starting with 25 out of the Bank of England. You've seen, you know, the Bank of Canada and uh, the RBA come back from pausing to hiking a, a little bit. And of course, there's this it's not a separate story of Japan, where we do think the BOJ is poised to have to, to start to tighten policy there eventually, maybe not this week. But I think the broad picture is one in which central banks are probably closer to the end than not, but the risks are keeping them on their toes. 
Absolutely. Uh, I think for EM, as we've highlighted, it's a slightly different dynamic. I think um, with the latest inflation numbers we're seeing, especially the sequential slowing in core inflation momentum, I think has been has been quite key. It still leaves a number of EM central banks on track to start rate cuts uh, or already this month. Uh, we've got Chile kicking off actually this week. And then we've still got Brazil in August, a couple of others in the fourth quarter, Poland, India, you know, EM Asia team have highlighted that actually the tightening in monetary conditions that's now coming through the uh, gains in trade weighted exchange rates is something that could allow some of the other EM Asian central banks like Indonesia, Philippines to potentially join in the rate cuts. So it still feels like EM is on a slightly different path than that's um, partly um, a result of them just having more restrictive policies and also um, having this additional tightening in monetary conditions coming from the FX gains. But but let's see how EMs respond to potentially food inflation picking back up. But for now, I think there's a window. I think that's the way I, I would characterize it. There's certainly a window of three to six months where these easing cycles can start and then maybe they stop. <laughs> so um, that might be a good um, point to end on. Um, so thanks very much, Mike, for joining me. Uh, thank you to our listeners uh, for listening to the Global Data Pod. And we look forward to continuing the conversation. This communication is provided for information purposes only. Please refer to JP Morgan Research Reports related to its content for more information, including important disclosures. 2023 JP Morgan Chase & Company, all rights reserved. This episode was recorded on July 25, 2023.